every summer. That's not going to be easy to adapt to. No, absolutely not. I don't think many people like the heat and humidity now. Talk about the heat and humidity in the future. Awesome. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about his influence on the weather, climate, and society here in South Jersey. We're going to talk about a couple of big weather anniversaries and a little pizza talk. And we're back. We're here with Dr. Tony Broccoli at Rutgers University. And Dr. Broccoli, as the chair of the Department of Environmental Sciences, what have you or even people before you in your position have done to impact the lives of South Jersey? Are there any programs or any um, research that you've done that's directly impacted people down here in our corner of the state? Well, this is a department that really got its start for addressing practical problems. Uh, if we look back over the history of, of the department, it was really about dealing with uh, issues that arose in uh, sewage treatment plants, wastewater treatment plants. That's, that's the department's early history. Today, there are a lot of things we do that are important for the citizens of New Jersey. We're the home uh, for the Water Resources Program, which provides people with information, practical know-how on how to better manage water so water doesn't run off uh, as rapidly so that it can percolate into the ground and uh, provide for a healthier environment. We have people doing research, for example, on PCBs in the environment. New Jersey's a state with a long industrial history, and sometimes the legacy of those industries includes uh, things in the soil or in the water that we wish weren't there. Right. And uh, our scientists here uh, are working on ways, uh, do, doing research on ways to ameliorate the effects of those uh, unwanted chemicals in the environment. Now, you're, and I said before, you know, you're the uh, chair of the Department of Environmental Sciences, co-chair of the Rutgers Climate Institute, but I didn't even scratch the surface on other titles that you have. Uh, you're a fellow of the American Meteorological Society. I believe you're the publications commissioner for the society as well, just to name a few. And, you know, we are celebrating the 100th year of the American Meteorological Society, as well as NOAA's 50th anniversary and the National Weather Service 150th anniversary. Why it's all on the same year, I don't know, but I guess good timing for us weather people. But you've had the pleasure of being associated with both NOAA and the AMS. Um, and let's start with NOAA here. You know, what are things that you can point to through your work in the past that have helped residents or governments down here in Southern New Jersey? Well, I think one of the most important missions of NOAA is that it's home to the National Weather Service, providing forecasts, trying to keep people out of harm's way. And uh, that's, a, that's a legacy that goes back, you know, fully through that history, 150 year history of the organization. And uh, in my role in NOAA, when I, was, when I was doing climate modeling there, part of our motivation was to prepare uh, the citizens of the United States for the changes in climate that may be coming down the road. So NOAA, very much a service organization. And uh, even though I'm not with NOAA now, I'm very proud of the 21 years that I spent there. Got it. And turning over to AMS, like I said, you're very much a part of the society. Actually, the uh, spark to have you here was part of the AMS conference when we were at a dinner in Boston and you said, hey, I should get on your podcast. And I said, you're absolutely right. We should have you on the podcast. But uh, in its 100th year, you know, what are you most proud of? I know you were, I believe you were president of a couple of the local chapters of the society here. So 
you know, you're very involved and I hope one day I can be like yourself. But uh, what are you most proud of the work that that's been done uh, over the past years that you've been involved? Well, the, I think the most important thing about uh, AMS is that it's a community for meteorologists. And it's a big tent community because we have people in AMS who work for the federal government. We have people who work for the... Hey everyone, I'm Joe Martucci, meteorologist for the Press of Atlantic City, and this is Something in the Air, a program that focuses on the weather. Well, it's more than that. Actually, Something in the Air is about weather, climate, and the environment. It's also about the people who are passionate about these things and who are trying to make a difference in our lives through their work. The environment is just one of the topics our journalists at the Press of Atlantic City cover. As the leading source for news in South Jersey, we also report on government, public safety, casinos, and the rich history here in South Jersey. Whether it's reporting on the reinvention of Atlantic City, the opioid epidemic, or the upcoming 2020 election, you can find these stories every day in the pages of the Press of Atlantic City or by going to pressofatlanticcity.com. From time to time, we'll bring you those stories here as part of our Press Presents series on local topics and people. But today, today, we're talking about my favorite subject, the weather. And here we have somebody that I have known for about 10 years, maybe 11 years now. He's a professor at Rutgers University where I got my degree in meteorology, the only place where you can get a Bachelor of Science in Meteorology in the state of New Jersey. And Dr. Broccoli was instrumental to that for me. Actually, my parents loved him immediately from the first time we talked, and I was very happy to be with him throughout my time at Rutgers. And I'll tell you what, this is what happened. Actually, in January, we were at the big weather conference in Boston. We were at dinner for a Rutgers alumni event. He said, you know, Joe, he's like, I would like to be on the podcast. And I said, we got to do it. So here we are. Without further ado, Dr. Tony Broccoli from Rutgers University. Okay, so we are here with Dr. Tony Broccoli. He is the co-chair for the Rutgers Climate Institute, as well as the chair of the Department of Environmental Science at Rutgers University. And I think more- Private sector, we have people at universities. Some of them are doing research. Some of them are doing operational forecasting. Some of them are uh, working in industry. And this big tent organization is a good way to bring people together and share their perspectives. We're united by our common love for, for weather and climate and water. Oh yeah, there, there's a lot of geeking out about weather and climate when you're at the, when you're at the conference and that's what it's there for. And you know, let people know, because I tell people all the time, I said, the AMS conference is a load of fun. You see so many people. Uh, and learn so many things. And plus all, you know, plus all the uh, after-conference events are really cool too. So just give everybody an idea of what the conferences are like. You've been to way more than I have been. Uh, so I think you have a good, uh, good experience with what goes down over there. But just let people know, like, what's it like? Why is it so much fun for meteorologists to go to this? Well, for me at least, I love hearing about the work that other people are doing. When you know, I, I feel pretty fortunate. I really love what I do. Um, sometimes I feel like I can't get enough of it. And uh, when you go to a conference where there are four or 5,000 meteorologists uh, talking about the work that they do, you're bound to find something that interests you. 
And uh, in addition to, to meeting a lot of really nice people, one thing I have to say about being a meteorologist and going to conferences with other meteorologists is we're never lacking on things to talk about. And yes, we do talk about the weather sometimes, but um, we're also, I think in general, a very warm and welcoming community. And so that's something I've really enjoyed throughout the years. Have you noticed, is there truth to the rumor that when there's an AMS conference, there's always some kind of wacky weather that goes on? Well, it has happened. And certainly, as you know, from the conference in Boston, 72 degrees, the all-time high temperature ever recorded in Boston in the month of January, definitely qualifies as wacky weather. Uh, I guess there was a, a conference in San Antonio some years ago that Many people unfortunately couldn't get to because there was a massive ice storm. Oh my God. But uh, occasionally the weather is a little bit more cooperative. And I guess we were, we were fairly fortunate in Boston this year that the extreme weather, the unusual weather was, was something warm and not a paralyzing blizzard that kept us from getting there. I, you know, I was thinking about this. So what do you think would have happened if there actually was a nor'easter in Boston during the conference? Like, would it just been like weather pandemonium? I was trying to think if everyone would have just been not even going to the conference and just looking outside all day. I, I don't know what would have happened. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to think about. It's a good thing there weren't too many windows in the convention <laughs> yeah, center. That's right. Yeah, it was. It was uh, there were a lot of places where you couldn't look out. Uh, and I remember too during it was 2012 during New Orleans they also set record highs. And I think it was in the 80s instead of the uh, 70s. So it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty summery, especially when you're bottled up in the cold all winter long. Sometimes it's nice to get down south, especially when it's in the 80s. Pool weather, basically. Yeah. Well, you know, a little story about that. Um, we left on a Saturday morning from New Jersey. And that morning there was a little bit of snow and freezing rain. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing my wife and I had to do was clear the driveway and then we headed off to the airport. And so some hours later, a little bit of a delay, some hours later we're in New Orleans, we're having dinner, we're, we're walking up and down Bourbon Street. And um, my wife says, well, you know, I'm getting a little tired, we should go back to the hotel. And I'm saying, but look, you know, all these people are out, they're having a good time. Yeah. Look at all their energy. And she says, yeah, but I bet none of them had to shovel the driveway this morning. Mm, yeah, that was probably true, yeah. They're, they're, I think you're shoveling uh, other things on Bourbon Street that aren't snow. I think all the beads that are on the ground is probably uh, a better thing to shovel than uh, yes. snow. Not as tiring. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap up with this. So, you know, Jersey guy through and through. I know you have a place in Seaside Park in Ocean County. So I got to ask you, because I've been going to Seaside Park for decades, what's your favorite pizza on the boardwalk, and I think when we were talking before, you said you might have some other places that you like that are off the boardwalk as well. Well, the first thing is that almost any pizza is good pizza as far as I'm concerned, but good. if I'm gonna pick pizza on the boardwalk in Seaside, I'm gonna go with the sawmill. Okay, yeah, that, that's a solid choice, huge pizza, and we were talking about the tuna bites too. Tuna bites are really good over there. Tuna bites are good. Awesome. Well, Dr. Brockman. Good sandwiches. Yeah, and good sandwiches. I mean, you really can't go wrong over there. So shout out to the sawmill. But uh, Dr. Brockley, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. I really appreciate it. This is something I wanted to do since we were talking in Boston. Now we're doing this in our uh, vodcast, video podcast, wherever have you. It's a pleasure to have you on here as well. So thank you again. We appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed awesome. it. This is Something in the Air podcast. We're going to close out in just a little bit. You 
You've been watching Something in the Air, a Press of Atlantic City program produced in partnership with Stockton University. Something in the Air, the latest South Jersey weather, and our fact-finding, award-winning journalism would not be possible without our readers and viewers. And remember, you can find the Press of Atlantic City all the time, anytime, at PressofAtlanticCity.com. Until we see you again, South Jersey. importantly for myself, a professor of mine, and somebody that my parents were very excited to meet when I was just a young meteorology student, even before I went to Rutgers. So Dr. Broccoli, thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Joe. You're very welcome. Now, first question for you. How does it feel to have the healthiest last name in the weather gang with Broccoli? Well, when I was in grade school, I can't say I was really all that fond of it. But as I've gotten older, I've come to embrace it. With caller ID, you don't get as many crank phone calls anymore. So I think there's some perks to it, right? Yeah, definitely. And you get cool looking uh, broccoli. Is that stuffed broccoli that's behind your left shoulder over there? That is stuffed broccoli courtesy of Ikea. Ikea does have it all. I know, I know. So let me ask you, when you were growing up in grade school, maybe you didn't have the fondest memories of your last name. I'm sure you had some very fond memories of the weather. So what actually sparked your interest in meteorology? I think that I was first interested in the weather when the tail end of a hurricane uh, brushed by New Jersey. It was probably sometime in the early 1960s. I can remember looking out the window uh, in the living room of the house and watching the trees blowing back and forth. And my dad telling me that it was because some hurricane had, had come into Texas and was scooting by New Jersey. And I've been interested in the weather ever since. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, I said, if you asked 10 meteorologists, I would say probably seven have wanted to do it since before middle school. Do you think that's an accurate number, seven out of 10 before middle school? Every time a prospective student comes into our department or I meet a new student and we get to talking, I usually ask that question. And yeah, I would say seven out of 10, eight out of 10, something like that is about right. Yeah, it's hard to just fall into weather. But uh, for you, you know, being, like you said, when you got interested in weather, you were in New Jersey, and you know, I mean, you're a real Jersey guy. You got your uh, bachelor's, master's, and PhD all from Rutgers. Uh, you've worked in New Jersey your whole life. I don't even know, has there been a time where you haven't either worked or was educated in New Jersey? And either way, what's it like to be a Jersey guy? Uh, I don't know anything else. It's It's been my whole life. It, it's, it's a little unusual for somebody who does what I do to be lucky enough to find uh, a job. In fact, I've had more than one, uh, but always here in New Jersey, uh, close to my family. And uh, yeah, I don't really know any other way. Yeah, I'm with you either. I was actually thinking, I don't remember the last time I pumped my own gas. Uh, you know, my wife's from Massachusetts, so I do get to pump gas once in a okay. while. All right. Unfortunately, unfortunately. Just uh, just let everybody know kind of your career and how you got to uh, where you are now at Rutgers University. So um, after I got my bachelor's in meteorology, I stayed on and got a master's degree, uh, worked at Rutgers for a few years as an instructor, and then I got a job with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, at their geophysical fluid dynamics lab in Princeton, which is one of the leading climate modeling centers in the world. 
I was with NOAA for 21 years. And then I saw this opportunity just up the road at Rutgers. And uh, I've been here ever since. I had to train myself when I got out to Route 1 in the morning to turn left instead of turning right. <laughs> but uh, I didn't even have to move. It's been great. Wow, that, that's awesome. That's awesome. And like you said, I think it is rare to be a meteorologist or in weather and really just stay in one place, you know, or even a same state. So, you know, I guess really fortunate for yourself and, you know, being in Jersey for so long. You know, we talk about weather and climate. How have you seen people's perceptions of it change over time from when you, know, you were just starting out to right here in good old 2020? Well, I think there are a few different ways that things have changed. First of all, uh, we have much more access to information about the weather. And I don't just mean those of us who are professional meteorologists, but I mean, for everyone, we have more access to weather. Weather is a 24-7 thing. You get apps on your phone that tell you what the weather is now and what it's going to do. And I think that's, that's been a big change. Uh, I think another thing that's been a big change is that we rely on weather forecasts now more than we did when I was studying meteorology. When I was studying meteorology, what was going to happen the day after tomorrow was pretty iffy. And today, we think nothing of making plans based on the seven-day forecast. Gotcha. And we're talking about climate. How about with that? Was climate, you know, really a thing people were talking about when you first got started? How was it back then and compared to now? The first time I really started thinking about climate was uh, when I was in school at Rutgers as a master's student, taking a course about how climates had changed in the distant past, you know, going back to the ice age and beyond. And at that time, our understanding of the role that humans play in climate change was just beginning to emerge. And so that has been a, a very dramatic change, uh, a greater recognition that, gee, you know, the, the climate that I experienced when I was growing up is very different now from the climate that we're experiencing today. Yeah, and uh, it's grown so much, of course, that it's intertwined in our government and political you know, society. And you've been invited to give testimony on climate change, I believe, if I counted right, nine times in the course of your career. So tell me what you spoke about each of those nine times or you know, just give us a brief rundown and what was the reception uh, during those times too? Well, you know, my role as I see it and I think the people who invited me saw it was to, to really talk about the science of climate change. There's a lot of different issues, as you said, associated with climate change, uh, but uh, for many people, uh, one important question is, is the climate changing? The answer is yes. Uh, are humans responsible? The answer is yes for most of the changes in climate we've seen over the last 50 years. But then there's the much harder question of what to do about it. My focus has typically been more on the first two questions because those are the areas where I feel that I have some knowledge based on my study of meteorology and climatology. But of course, uh, when you're testifying before state legislature or talking to the governor, they're interested in policy too. So the, the questions can be quite wide ranging. But you know, it's been a positive experience because what it does show is that there are people interested, that, this, that what I do matters. Yeah, and I, you know, when I do talks, 
I tell people, because I always get the climate change question. What do you think about climate change? What do you think about climate change? And I tell people, I say, you know, listen, climate change isn't a religion. You don't believe in it or not. Like, there's facts. And then what you choose to do about it is where your political beliefs come in. And I think, like, like you were just trying to illustrate, you know, your job and, you know, our jobs and the weather and climate field to give the facts. And, you know, the policy, you know, we might have, we're going to have our own opinions, of course, but it's not our job per se. Um, but, you know, that being said, like, you know, do you think uh, there'll be a time, like, or have you seen any shifts in weather and or climate and politics in the sense that are we really at a point now where we're talking about the facts and, you know, people are accepting the facts as facts and, you know, policy is separate or are they still so intertwined? I think that they're still more intertwined than I would like to see them be because I think if you're gonna have an intelligent conversation about what to do, it's important to agree on what the facts are. Uh, but I think we've been moving in the right direction. Right. And uh, one thing that I see, and this is maybe something we're having the privilege of, of teaching students uh, really helps, is that the students I'm teaching today are much more aware of this issue than I was when I was a student. And even if they may have differing values and different, different opinions about politics, I think there's a much greater acceptance that this is something real that we're going to have to deal with as a society, and we should have a healthy debate about how to deal with it. Yeah, and I would say when I was at Rutgers, I think you know, we learned a lot about climate. I think everyone I graduated with, I think we all had an understanding for it. And I know for sure you know, there were people with different political beliefs. So. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, Dr. Broccoli has a new book out about climate change. Thank you, everybody, for sticking around with us. This is Something in the Air podcast. We are here with Dr. Tony Broccoli from Rutgers University. And uh, Dr. Broccoli, you have a new book out along with Siakuro Manabi called Beyond Global Warming, How Numerical Models Revealed the Secrets of Climate Change. Uh, I know there was a lot of press that came out about this book, and it's focusing on the history of using models to predict the climate. And, you know, for those of us uh, who are interested in climate, even for those of us who you know, may not have the most in-depth interest in climate, what's the biggest takeaway people can get from this book? Well, I think what we were trying to do with this book was to document how uh, Suki, who I worked with at NOAA for the better part of the time I was there, how his understanding of climate change evolved from all of the experiments that he was involved in from you know, way back in the 1960s, uh, right up through the present day. And it's, it's kind of the journey of a scientist uh, in trying to understand how our climate system works. Got it. And I believe something most people might find interesting is that we've actually been trying to use climate or trying to predict the climate using models since way before computers. Um, I think I saw something maybe back in the early 1900s. So how was that done? Well, of course, it, with those early models, they had to be the kind of models that you could solve with a pencil and paper. <laughs> And so they were very simple, but they were attempts to include whatever understanding existed at that time 
of the physics of the climate system. And surprisingly, they weren't way off base in terms of what they had to say about how climate would respond to changes in carbon dioxide. All right, so like, what kind of math are we talking for everybody? Are we talking about algebra? Are we talking about geometry? Are we talking about calculus? In those early models, it was probably more algebra than anything else. Wow. So even some algebra uh, was able to predict the climate, and you said relatively accurate uh, rate. What's the difference uh, for those you know, who are learning about climate or interested about climate, what's the difference between those primitive, really primitive models that you're doing with the pen and paper and what we're doing now, you know, just besides that we can do it at a much, much, much faster rate? What's included in those models now? Yeah, so in those early models was basically treating the Earth as a whole. How much will the temperature of the Earth change in response to, let's say, doubling the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? What we do today is to use climate models that are very similar to the models that are used to forecast the weather, that divide the earth up into a, a grid of boxes, in some models, maybe even literally millions of boxes, mm. so that we can refine how weather and climate are changing in different places and at different times. Right. So those first models were just giving us a very broad sketch of what would happen and now we're looking at a more refined version. Gotcha. Do, do you talk anything about the future of climate modeling in your book and like what's the next big frontier in that aspect of climatology? We don't so much talk about how models will change in the future, but we do talk about ways that we can uh, test our models uh, to make sure that they're consistent with observations as new observations come in and how important that that will be to trying to pin down with even greater detail what our climate future looks like. Gotcha. And you know, for someone who's been studying the climate for so long, what what you know got you interested actually in climate? Because I'm going to imagine, and I know it's not always good to assume, but I would imagine you were probably interested in the weather when you know, that hurricane passed you by, and then at some point you said, "Hey, you know, I'm more interested in studying the long-term pattern." So when did that come about? Uh, was it something that was quick? Was it something that you were kind of thinking about for a little bit? Well, when I started as a, a student at Rutgers, I thought I was going to become a weather forecaster because that was my image of what meteorologists did. But during my time at Rutgers, I learned about research projects. Some of them involved weather, some of them involved climate. And I really found myself becoming more and more interested in the climate part of things. And of course, climate and weather aren't entirely different things. But uh, today, it's kind of come full circle because a lot of the research I do about climate is understanding how changes in climate will affect extreme weather. And for here in New Jersey, um, do you talk about New Jersey a lot in your book? Um, and if you do, what is it? And if not, just give people an idea of what goes into climate modeling for the New Jersey area or what you're most focused on when you're looking at a model for the region. So one of the things that's very challenging about looking at a, at a specific reason is that these models are really designed to give us a bigger picture view of things. Not as big as those early models where we treated the whole earth as if it was a single point, but we still have to be really cautious about not trying to drill down too far. That said, the big advancement in computer power has enabled us to now use models where 
instead of maybe the whole state of New Jersey being one grid box like it might have been 30 years ago, now we might have dozens of grid boxes in the state of New Jersey. And that can help us better refine how different parts of the state experience climate change. For us here in uh, southern New Jersey and specifically along the shoreline, what is uh, most impactful do you think in terms of the climate and what has been and what will happen to the region? I'd have to start with sea level rise because as the climate is warming, first of all, the temperature of the ocean is warming. When you warm up water, it becomes less dense, it expands, mm -hmm. and that's contributing to sea level rise. But at the same time, we're getting melting of ice, melting of glaciers in the mountains, and melting of the big ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica, and they're combining to raise sea level. So the Jersey Shore is ground zero for sea level rise, and that's gonna be one of the big impacts. But it's not the only impact, because we are talking about uh, increases in temperature, meaning more extreme warm days, less extreme cool days, also, intensity of precipitation is something that is changing, has already changed and is projected to change in the future. So we can expect heavy rains to become heavier in the future. Mm -hmm. For, you know, southern New Jersey, sometimes I've heard people say, you know, oh, uh, you know, so what if the climate changes? You know, it's always been changing or, you know, we'll adapt to it. Is that, is that a good way to think about this? Well, Certainly the climate has changed in the past, but when we talk about really big changes in climate in the past, we're talking about changes that happened before there were people living in New Jersey. Um, the changes we've been seeing over the course of the last half century or so are very rapid compared to the changes in climate we've seen before. And that's one of the things that makes adaptation difficult. Uh, but to just give one example, under a high, uh, CO2 emission scenario, we could go from rarely having a triple digit temperature day in New Jersey to having as many as 20 or 25 triple digit days every